Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 73 is Proverbs 8 about Jesus, Part 3, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr is possibly the most interesting second-century Christian. Martyr was not his last name, you know. Children did not address him as Mr. Martyr. He's come to be called Justin Martyr because sometime between the years 162 and 167, he and several friends were executed by the Romans because they refused to offer the legally mandated sacrifices to the traditional Roman deities. According to the traditional account, when Rusticus, the prefect of Rome, demanded that they comply on pain of death, they replied, Do what you will, for we are Christians and do not sacrifice to idols. For this defiant act of faith, they were beaten and decapitated. In this way, the account of their death says, they perfected their testimony. We are still lucky to possess three genuine writings by Justin Martyr, Two of them are apologies. They're called the First Apology and the Second Apology. The First Apology is believed to have been written between 151 and 155. And an apology here is not an I'm sorry. It's not what a husband gives to his wife after he forgets their anniversary. The word apology comes from the Greek apologia, and it's basically a defense, like a statement of the defense in a trial. Justin's first apology and his second apology are public letters written to different Roman emperors explaining kind of what Christians are up to and why they shouldn't be persecuted by the Roman government. The third genuine book we have from Justin is his famous book called Dialogue with Trypho. This is a series of arguments conducted over two days between him and mainly one Jew named Trypho. The dialogue with Trypho is thought by scholars to have been written in Rome between 155 and 161, but it seems to be based on a conversation that happened about 20 years earlier. The setting of the conversation is the city of Ephesus in about 135, right after the end of the disastrous revolt by Simeon Bar Kochba. This was when the Jews rose up and threw out the Romans and enjoyed for a short time self-rule. And then they were really decisively crushed and scattered to the four corners of the earth by the Romans in 135. The bulk of this book really is an argument against Judaism and for Christianity based mostly on the Jewish Bible. It's a fascinating book and we'll take a closer look at it in the next episode of the Trinity's podcast. When we come back, The Life of Justin.
Justin was born probably in the 110s in Samaria. He seems to have been raised by pagans, and like many students in his day, he went from teacher to teacher searching for the truth. He tells us about his interesting search for truth in chapters 2 through 8 in the dialogue with Trypho. At first, he studied under a certain Stoic philosopher. Then he was going to study with an Aristotelian philosopher, but thought the guy was a little bit too concerned with his tuition fee. And he says, quote, I left him because I did not consider him a real philosopher, end quote. Then he tried out a Pythagorean. But the people who really turned him on were the Platonists. And he didn't just dip a toe in the water with Platonism. He jumped right into it. He says, quote, I spent as much time as possible in the company of a wise man who was highly esteemed by the Platonists and who had but recently arrived in our city. Under him I forged ahead in philosophy, and day by day I improved. The perception of incorporeal things quite overwhelmed me, and the Platonic theory of ideas added wings to my mind, so that in a short time I imagined myself a wise man. So great was my folly that I fully expected immediately to gaze upon God, for this is the goal of Plato's philosophy." His mention of ideas there, he's talking about Plato's doctrine of universals. Things like humanity, or blueness, or hoarseness. These Plato thought to be real, non-physical, eternal items, which somehow manifest in the world of material objects. Even if there were no horses, there would still be hoarseness. Not all philosophers agree, of course. I don't agree. But many philosophers have, possibly a majority of Western philosophers, have agreed that there are such things as universals, or forms, or ideas. But not necessarily ideas in the mind. They're more like eternal, non-physical patterns according to which everything in the world has been made. But he didn't stay a Platonist. At least in some sense, he didn't stay a Platonist. He tells us in chapter 3 that one day when he was kind of meditating in solitude by the sea, he met a respectable old man of meek and venerable appearance. Turns out this man is a Christian. They have this conversation and the man basically inserts some doubt in Justin's mind about whether the Platonists are really wise, whether they can really see God whether the human mind is really capable of things like seeing God. He casts doubt on their doctrine of transmigration of souls, which is to say reincarnation, because Platonists and some of the other Greek philosophers believed in that. They have this kind of rambling discussion that goes on for several chapters. Honestly, the arguments are not tightly put together. It's more biographical, Justin telling you how he came to doubt Platonism than really giving strong arguments against it. Justin says that he never did talk to the guy again after that one conversation. But here's what he says after relating that conversation. This is in chapter 8. When he had said these and many other things, which it is not convenient to recount right now, he went his way after admonishing me to meditate on what he had told me, and I never saw him again. But my spirit was immediately set on fire and an affection for the prophets and for those who are friends of Christ took hold of me. While pondering on his words, I discovered that his was the only sure and useful philosophy. 
Thus it is that I am now a philosopher. Justin, and he doesn't go into great detail about it, became a Christian. But he didn't cease being a philosopher. He said, this is the true philosophy. This is the true love of wisdom. In fact, in ancient times, philosophers would wear a certain kind of simple garment, a certain kind of robe that would signal that they were philosophers. And we know that Justin continued to wear that robe to show himself as a philosopher. Now, in the dialogue with Trypho, he's telling this to Trypho, the Jew, and some of his Jewish friends, and they laugh at him and tell him that he's put his trust in a man. And this is just a prelude to the main argument of the book. Here's the interesting thing. If you read this conversation that Justin has with the old man, and remember this is at a time when Justin is a fully committed disciple of Platonism. He is a Platonist. That is his philosophy and his religion. If you look at what he says there about God, you will see that he doesn't really change his concept of God when he becomes a Christian. It's not unfair to say that his concept of God is essentially platonic. In chapter 3, the old man asks him how does he define God, and he, Justin, now still a Platonist, says, quote, God is the being who always has the same nature in the same manner and is the cause of the existence of all else, end quote. So there's two components to his idea. One is that God is the ultimate source of everything else. Right, that's monotheism. And that's something that probably all Christians will agree with. The other thing is that he always has the same nature in the same manner. That's a way of saying that God is essentially unchanging that he can't be one way at one time and a different way at a different time. Not just that he's constant in character, not just that he exists at all times and cannot not exist, but that he is, in a strong sense, incapable of change. He can't intrinsically be one way at one time and another way at another time. This is something that Christian philosophers have argued about quite a lot in recent times, some, like me, think this is just incorrect, that the Bible portrays a God who, once time is created, and he, like all things, is in time, and he can do things in time and undergo change while still remaining perfect and divine in every way. Other Christian philosophers have defended this absolute timelessness and changelessness of God, which is traditional to Platonism, but also central to the ancient Catholic tradition. In the introduction to the modern edition of his first and second apologies, the translator Leslie William Barnard says this, quote, As a result of his conversion to the Christian faith, Justin inherited the rich biblical doctrine of God as living creator, a compassionate father, 
who in Christ had drawn near to people and who was concerned with the welfare of each soul. Yet Justin remained a Platonist even after his conversion. He retained the middle Platonist idea of God as unknowable and transcendent, the unmoved first cause, nameless and unutterable, unbegotten, residing far above the heavens, and incapable of coming into immediate contact with any of his creatures. Justin had no real theory of divine immanence to complement his emphasis on divine transcendence. His doctrine of the Logos, in fact, kept the supreme deity at a safe distance from intercourse with humankind and left the Platonic transcendence in all its bareness. God operated through the Logos, who alone bridged the gulf that would otherwise have proved impassable. End quote. When we come back, what does Justin say about Proverbs chapter 8? According to Justin Martyr, Proverbs 8 is most certainly about the pre-human Jesus. In two places in his famous book, Dialogue with Trypho, Justin quotes the relevant portions of Proverbs 8 and urges that this is Jesus. He also seems to refer to Proverbs 8 in his second apology, chapter 6. But why does Justin think that this is Jesus? In episode 71 of the Trinity's podcast, we saw that arguably no New Testament writer read Proverbs 8 as being about Jesus. And in episode 72 of the Trinity's podcast, we saw that in the early post-New Testament era, some mainstream Christians did think that Proverbs 8 was about Jesus, and others seemingly did not. Why then does Justin think that it's about Jesus? One reason is that Justin probably thinks that Paul teaches Jesus' pre-existence. While Justin in his surviving works never quotes the Apostle Paul, he does repeatedly use the phrase firstborn or first begotten, which would seem to be an allusion to Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The Greek word is prototokos, firstborn, and it can refer either to first in the order of time, as in a firstborn child, or it can refer to someone who is preeminent in rank. Somewhere God says to David that he will make David his firstborn. 
And Justin uses it not to mean just preeminent in rank, but rather as kind of the first offshoot of God, not God's creation, because he thinks that God created through Jesus, but in some sense an emanation from God. Not the only one. He seems to think the same thing about the Holy Spirit and about the angels. But in any case, Jesus would be the first, and also the preeminent one, according to him. Justin also clearly knows about John chapter 1, and though he doesn't discuss it at length, he believes that the word there is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. So obviously then, one reason why Justin thinks that Proverbs 8 refers to Jesus, and in general, one reason why he believes in pre-existence, is because he believes that the pre-existence of Jesus and Jesus' role in creation are taught by both Paul and John. Here's the thing, though. People have read John 1 and Colossians 1 and have interpreted them in ways that don't involve Jesus pre-existing or somehow assisting with the creation of the cosmos. We talked a little bit about how to read John 1 that way in episodes 70 and 71 of the Trinity's podcast. Colossians 1 we haven't got around to yet, but we will. And remember also that these things are not mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, and we also know that some 2nd century Christians seemingly did not believe in Jesus' pre-existence or his role in creation. So just pointing at those passages and that Justin had knowledge of those passages I think isn't quite enough to explain why he holds those views. To fully understand that, I think you have to delve into his theology. It turns out that for basically philosophical reasons, he thinks that God cannot have created directly, but must have had an intermediary. The quotation given a few minutes ago touched on this, but we'll have to get into this more in the next episode of the Trinity's podcast. When we come back, why does Justin quote two different versions of this passage? Here's another interesting thing about his discussion. When Justin quotes Proverbs 8 in chapters 61 and 129 of his dialogue with Trypho, the quotations aren't quite the same. Either he's being a little sloppy and quoting from memory, or he's employing two different Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible. We know that there were different Greek translations in use, and at a couple of points in the dialogue, he actually accuses the Jews of preferring one translation or one version of a text to another for theological reasons. So, in other words, Christians were saying that this and that Old Testament passage were about Christ, and Jews were using something other than their Septuagint. 
The Septuagint was the famous and widely used Greek translation that's always quoted when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. They're actually quoting from this ancient Greek translation. And Christians in the second century, not infrequently, would complain that the Jews were arbitrarily abandoning ship, that just because the Christians were making all these powerful arguments from the Septuagint, from that translation of the Hebrew Bible, because of what the Christians were doing, the Jews were increasingly, as time went on, abandoning the Septuagint version of their Bible. And they were coming up with different Greek translations in which some of these passages were different. In any case, when Justin quotes Proverbs 8, there's an interesting difference between the quotations. And of course, this is all in Greek, so it could reflect that he's using one of the Jews' preferred translations in one case and not the other. The difference is in verse 22. In the New Revised Standard Translation, it says, The Lord created me at the beginning of his work. When Justin quotes this in chapter 61 of his book, it says, The Lord begot me in the beginning of his ways. But when he quotes it again in chapter 129, it says, The Lord made me as the beginning of his ways. Now, which is it? Was wisdom begotten in the beginning, or was wisdom made as a beginning? What does it mean to make something as a beginning? This is where it gets interesting. First, an observation about this particular verse. Many Christian translations have avoided translating what God did to wisdom here as created or even made. This is no doubt because of the 4th century controversy, which turned on whether or not the pre-human Jesus was created sometime before God made the cosmos through him. But the Septuagint, which the New Testament authors and all the other early Christians like Justin were reading, the Septuagint does say created. This is what we have in our modern English translation of the Septuagint in Proverbs 8.22. And many modern translations from the Hebrew agree. Despite this traditional bias, many modern Christian translations say made or created here. Now, there are some that opt for the translation possessed, which is a possible meaning of the Hebrew word, although it's seemingly not the meaning in this context, since in verse 25, Lady Wisdom says that God brought her forth, or begot her, which is to say God caused her to be born way back then. So the statement that the Lord made me in the beginning is inconvenient for the Trinitarian mainstream, and yet the mainstream translations are coming around to what seems to be the correct translation, that the Lord made or created wisdom way back in the day. Right, but what does it mean to say the Lord made me as a beginning? Here I found a really interesting insight from the recent book called The Jewish Jesus, How Judaism and Christianity Shaped Each Other. This is by the leading historian of Judaism, Peter Schaefer. He says that in the book of Jesus ben Sirach, this is in the Christian Bible as the Apocrypha. It's not in Protestant Bibles, but it is in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. This book seems to say in one place that God's wisdom just is the Torah. It's the law or the books of the law that were revealed through Moses. So Schaefer says, quote, Hence, wisdom in Judaism becomes synonymous with the book of the Torah, 
and loses its concrete personal existence. Accordingly, the rabbis understood Bereshit in Genesis 1.1, not as, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, but as, by means of wisdom, that is the Torah, God created the heaven and the earth. When God created his world, he used the book of the Torah as his architectural blueprint. End quote. So that's what it would be to create something as a beginning. Some of the Jews taught in rabbinic times and seemingly before rabbinic times that God first made the Torah and then made all other things through the Torah. So it's possible that Justin is reacting against that. He's saying, oh yes, wisdom was made as a beginning. So in a beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, by means of this beginning. Justin could be saying, well, the beginning is Christ and not the Torah. If that's what the Jewish translation said in Proverbs 8.22, the Lord made me as the beginning of his ways, it could be that Justin is saying, even if it reads that way, still, it's about Jesus. The creation was done through Jesus. Dr. Schaefer also brought to my attention another interesting issue about Proverbs chapter 8, and that is, what exactly does this chapter say that wisdom did or was doing at the creation? Now, what happens is people read John 1, people read Paul, and honestly, people read Platonic philosophy, and they say, well, wisdom is the means by which God creates. In other words, She's like an agent. She's the person who's actually doing the creating, and God is kind of behind it all, maybe giving her direction or empowering her or something. But they basically think that she's the direct creator. It's interesting that it doesn't say that. This is what it does say. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When he had not yet made earth and fields, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight. Rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the human race. So she's with him, she's beside him, she's his delight, she's rejoicing before him, she's rejoicing before him and delighting in the human race. Then I was beside him like a master worker. Here's what Dr. Schaefer says. We are told of wisdom that she was created before the creation of the world and was with God as his confidant or his master worker when he assigned to the sea its limit and marked out the foundations of the earth. What I have translated as confidant or master worker is in Hebrew, aman, 
a word whose precise meaning was debated by even the ancient translators. The Septuagint translates Ammon with harmosusa, the fitting or appropriate, which is to say helper, the one who arranges everything. That is, it apparently affirms the meaning master worker, although in the feminine. And similarly, and even more clearly, the wisdom of Solomon refers to technitis, that is, artist or craftsman. Aquila, on the other hand, suggests a very different meaning when he translates Ammon with tethenumene, that is, foster child or darling. Both translations are possible, but the context clearly speaks in favor of the latter. Wisdom as God's little child, more precisely his little daughter, who is witness of his creation and the source of his delight, quote, always playing before him, end quote, as Proverbs 8.30 explicitly states. And if you look at the translation master worker in Proverbs 8.30 in the New Revised Standard Version, it says another reading is little child. Again, not convenient for the mainstream tradition. As you'll see, master worker fits better with the theology that comes down through Platonism and which is really pushing people like Justin Martyr towards the need for an intermediary between God and creation, between God and the material world. next episode of the Trinity's podcast, we'll hear some of Justin's dialogue with Trypho, the Jew, and we'll investigate what Justin teaches about God and about Jesus. If you'd like to send me some audio feedback for possible inclusion in an episode of the Trinity's podcast, there's a link on every blog post where you can upload me any kind of audio file. Just try to keep it brief, to the point, and interesting. Of course, I will ensure that you sound marvelous. Also, thanks to Greg. I know that he's made some purchases by going through the Amazon.com links on the Trinity's blog. When you do that, if you search or click on a product and go to the Amazon store, we'll get a small percentage of the purchase price, and it doesn't cost you anything. So that's another way that you can support the Trinity's podcast. You can also give a one-time or recurring PayPal donation using the orange buttons to the right of any blog post. And a heartfelt thanks for a recurring monthly donation given by Timothy. Timothy, thank you very much. Your ongoing support is much appreciated. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.